Luke 17, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 together. Um, some passages of Scripture are like a hamburger, sort of a self-contained meal. It's got everything that you need. You can see all the layers very clearly, and it's, it's, it's delicious, Matt says. Yeah, that's another way to think about it. Sort of self-contained. And then other passages of Scripture are kind of like a Chinese buffet, where you have... Um, you have lo mian and you have spaghetti. And they kind of have something in common, but you're not really sure what it is. They're both food and they're both noodle-ish. Um, but what exactly is it? Or you have fried chicken and fried rice. They're both there and they're food. But what exactly is the relationship between these things? And, and in some ways, that's kind of what we have here in Luke 17, 1 through 10. Um, some people question whether or not this is actually a um, just sort of Luke wants to get these important teachings of Jesus out, and so he's put them together. But it would seem that there is some sort of connection between um, the themes. As we look through, you'll see it break down pretty easily into four different thoughts. Um, but I think that the theme across it, we could say, we, we talked last time about, uh, through, through chapter 16, about money in the kingdom of God. Um, I, I think we could think about this in terms of relationships in the kingdom of God. Um, relationships between us and other believers, other fellow Christians, and relationship between us and God. So let's think about it in that term, relationships in the kingdom of God. Um, and just to give you a preview of, of what you'll see here, in, in verses 1 through 4, we'll see our relationships with one another. It has to do with, with sin, with temptations to sin, with um, rebuking others with forgiving others, so this idea of, of loving others, you might even say. We can think about it in terms of the, the great commandment, to love God and to love my neighbor as myself. And so the first part might be geared more towards loving my neighbor as myself. And then verses 5 through 10, we're going to see this call to, to faith and then a call to, to service, or even we might say to duty. And, and that's sort of um, our relationship with God. And so that's kind of the, the, the themes that we're going to think about this morning, relationships in the kingdom of God. And so I just want to jump right in to verses 1 through 10. So look at those verses with me, and I will read them, and then we're going to draw these, these themes out and seek to apply them. Verse 1 of Luke 17. And he said to his disciples, Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. 
So relationships in the kingdom of God, relationships with one another, relationships with God. Let's think about how we relate with one another. If, if you are a, a Christian, if you are, um, if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, even specifically as, as a church, how, how do we relate with one another and how do we interact with one another and specifically when it comes to sin? I think the first thing that Jesus is saying to us here is keep others from sin. That's sort of the first thing we're going to think about. Keep others from sin or from sinning. And the first way Jesus is going to talk about doing that is that we can keep other people from falling into sin or from sinning is through our own personal holiness. So Jesus is going to set holiness, personal holiness, trying to grow in, in Christ like this. He's going to set it in the context of, of community. I think we often are like the Pharisees. When we think about holiness, we think about we think about it purely in and of ourselves. And we think about it purely as of a personal benefit. So I need to be holy because that's what God wants me to do. And, and, if it, and it will be good for me if I don't sin. Because if I do sin, then things will not go well for me. And that's all true. God's commandments are for our good. Personally, they are for our good. But it's equally true that sin within a community affects other people. But we said not too long ago that there is no such thing as victimless sin, that everyone is affected by your sin and by my sin in some way or another, especially when we live in a community. And just as people can be affected by my sin, they can also be encouraged by my obedience. So when you think about personal holiness, let's, let's think about it within the context of a community of believers. So Jesus begins here by acknowledging that temptations to sin are sure to come. So he says, it's going to happen. And I think we all know this. We live in a world that's marked by selfishness, that's, that's marked by sin. So there will always be temptations in the world until Jesus returns. That, that should not surprise us. I think sometimes we get a little surprised by that. And we get frustrated that there's temptation in the world. Jesus says, it's going to happen. And it, and it will continue to happen. But in light of that, then, Jesus says, Woe to the person. It's a warning, anguish. There's going to be pain and affliction and misery to the person who causes those temptations. Through whom those temptations come. So it's one thing to be stuck in a traffic jam. It's another thing to be the guy at the front who ran out of gas on the interstate and is causing the traffic jam. Nobody wants to be that guy, you know. And so that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. It's one thing to sin. It's another thing to, to cause other people to sin. And Jesus spells out the woe there, in, in the woe that we find in verse 2. He says what he really thinks about it in, 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 in verse 2. It would be better for this guy, the person through whom temptations come, the person who is causing other people to fall into sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, just think big rock, uh, something that they would use to grind grain, could vary in size, but it's big, um, were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. It's better for that to happen, for you to die a tragic, premature, mafia-style death. That's what it reminds me of, doesn't it? You know, like you've got some cement shoes. It, like It's better to die like that than it is to cause one of these little ones to sin. 
this idea of, of who, who, who are the little ones? Is it, is it little children? I think we could probably say that it's a reference to, to all Christians. Because we are all, in many ways, we are like little children. Um, we are weak. We are vulnerable. We are tempted in, in various ways. First um, John. John always calls his readers little children. And there's a sense in which that's what we all are. We, we, are, we are swayed easily. And he's saying here, you may be strong in some areas, but you might cause someone who is, who is weak, who is a little child in the faith. It, it could be someone who's new in the faith, but it could just be anyone. You might cause them to fall into sin. So why is it better to die this horrible, premature, vicious death than it is to... Um, to cause someone else to sin. Why is Jesus saying that, that that's so bad? I, I think at least part of what he's saying is that, that if you die now, there are, there are present consequences. You're going to die early. That's, that's not great, but it's better than you causing people to sin and facing eternal consequences for that. That, that it would be better for you to die a horrible death now than to cause people to sin and then face that at the judgment seat of Christ. So I, whatever exactly he's saying here, what he's saying is this is serious, right? This is, this is a very serious matter. We should not be nonchalant. We shouldn't be casual when we think about how we might cause others to sin. We should, we should pause and think about how we all might be doing this. I think that's part of the verse 3 there. Pay attention to yourselves. We've got to think about this. One of the easiest applications would be for teachers, for someone like myself. Am I leading the church into truth or into error? Is there proper balance in what I'm saying? Does my teaching cause you to fall into sin or into pride? Does it keep you from holiness in some way? I think that's, that's a, something we need to think hard about. As I need to think hard about as a leader. I think about Galatians 2. In Galatians 2, Paul describes this, this scene where some people from Jerusalem had, had come and, and there was this whole division between Jews and Gentiles and some people from Jerusalem came and, and the Jews and the Gentiles were eating together and, and these folks from Jerusalem said that's not right. And Peter was there, one of the apostles, and Peter actually gets sucked into this whole thing, and so he segregates himself from the Gentile Christians and goes off with the just the Jewish Christians, and so there's this split sort of going on within the church, and it gets so bad that even Barnabas, Paul says, gets pulled into this whole thing. So we've got, we've got Jerusalem, these people from Jerusalem that pull Peter away because of their sin, and then Peter in turn and these guys pull Barnabas away as a leader in the church. They're causing division within the church. This can, this can happen, and, and we need to watch out to make sure we're not drawing people into other kinds of sin. James 3.1 says that not many should be teachers because they will face a stricter judgment. Part of that stricter judgment is just that there's greater influence. And so we, we have to watch out for how are people being led astray or encouraged. But, but James 3.1 also introduces James' teaching on the tongue, on, on what we say. And he talks about how, we can, how what we say is, is, can often lead into sin very easily. This is an area where we are all prone to causing other people to sin, the things that we say. Let me just ask you a few questions. Do you... Do you tell jokes? Do you make comments that cause people to be maybe filled with anger or jealousy or racism or lust? Ephesians 6.4 calls fathers 
and says, don't provoke your children to wrath. Often we would do that with our speech. So as parents, the way we talk, are we leading our children into sin? Are we being overly harsh? Are we causing our children to become easily frustrated or exasperated or discouraged? That that can happen with the way that we say things. We are leading our children, we are tempting them into sin. Husbands, do, do you speak to your wife? Do we speak to our wives in an, in an understanding way, in a loving, sacrificial way? Or do we make it hard for our wives to show love and, and respect to us because we're harsh or because we are short-tempered? Wives, do you, do you speak to your husband with, with gentleness, with, with respect? Or, or do you belittle your husband? Do you provoke him towards, towards bitterness or towards anger in the way that you speak to him? We could cause people to sin in that way. Children, children, do you, do you obey your parents with respect? Or do you on purpose make it hard for them to keep their cool? Do you know how to push mom and dad's buttons? And you do it on purpose and cause them to get angry a little bit too easily. Now, we always make the choice to sin. <laughs> People are feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit here. <laughs> I think we all do this. We, we, we push people's buttons on purpose and we, we, we know that we're doing it. And it's not right for anyone. No matter what happens, it's always my personal responsibility whether or not I sin. But am I causing people to sin? At work, do you say things that breed disrespect or mockery towards your boss or even towards customers? Do you model laziness at your workplace such that people underneath you are going to follow that? Do the, the movies that you recommend or the music that you talk about, does that cause someone to go out and, and maybe watch something or listen to something that maybe is fine for you but actually leads them down a path of sin? This is hard because think about all these, these different things. And, and of course, it's not just the things that we say that can cause people to sin, but, but our actions often speak louder than our words, don't they? As, in a leadership standpoint, do, do my actions lead you into truth, to holiness, or do they lead you to sin? As I am a, a father, am I teaching my children to be hypocrites, or am I leading them into truth? Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, we don't have time to go there, but I encourage you, if you want to seek to really apply some of this a little bit more, you might go there and consider that this afternoon or this this week. There Paul talks about a person's freedom. We are free to do all things, but that that freedom can actually cause another brother or a sister to, to stumble. Specifically, he's talking about eating meat. Just eating meat that had been offered to idol can cause someone else to fall into sin. And so Paul's response is, fine, I won't eat meat. I won't eat any meat because I don't want to cause my brother or sister to sin. So was he being unholy by eating that meat? He said, no, I'm fine to eat that meat. But the reason it became unholy was that it was causing someone else to sin. We looked at this in youth recently, and uh, Matt hopefully pointed out, he said, the point of Christian freedom is not simply that we have the right to do certain things, but more that we are free actually to give up our rights for the good of our brother or sister in Christ. Again, this is seeing holiness not just about me. It's seeing it within the community, that what I say and what I do can cause others to fall into sin and temptation. Now, we could get crazy with this, couldn't we? I mean, because temptations are sure to come, and there's no way that you can guard against everything. But we do need to, to be careful. We do need to pay attention to ourselves. We want to be careful that we're not 
calling people, causing people to fall into sin. But, but rather, we need to be filled with vigilant and watchful love. I think that's the way to think about it. Maybe vigilant, watchful love. So we're, we're watching over our lives with vigilance. And, and we're making sure that what we're doing is not causing others to sin. The temptations to sin will come, but let's make sure, let's pay careful attention that, that we're not leading others into sin. Mark 9 actually goes further than this. He tells us about this vigilant, watchful love. This is a parallel passage about paying attention to ourselves, and this is how Mark describes it. You've heard these words of Jesus. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Now Jesus isn't advocating literally cutting off your hand or your foot or ripping out your eye. He's saying we need to be radical. We need to be crazy about the way that we we go about getting sin out of our lives. And he says because sin has eternal consequences. We can tie that back into here and say the eternal consequences tie into if my sin causes someone else to fall into sin. So holiness, personal holiness, has a community aspect to it. And Jesus is calling us to keep others from sin. That This kind of vigilance, it's not self-serving, it, it serves others as well. But not only do we keep people from sin through personal holiness, but Jesus also says that we can keep people from sin by rebuking them. That's what shows up in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So again, it's this aspect of keeping people from sin. This would seem to be referring specifically to sin against you. That's how he says it later on um, in verse 4, if he sins against you. So I don't think this is just any sin. I don't think we're supposed to be like cops going around looking and trying to find where everyone's sin is so we can point it out. And I rebuke you because I caught you doing this wrong thing. It's more specifically about when people sin against us. And so it says here, if your brother sins, tell everyone but him about it. No, that's not what it says, is it? It says if your brother sins, rebuke you. That's a lot easier to do, isn't it? When someone sins against me to complain to someone else about what they had done. Um, if, if your brother sins, then just stew on it all day long. No, if your brother sins, you're supposed to rebuke him it's 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 easy to be bitter or to be angry it's hard to lovingly confront someone about the way that they have hurt you it's hard because sometimes we realize it's well it's my own person we're trying to decide am i just mad because it's my own personal preference is this really sin but when there are circumstances when someone has sinned against us jesus is saying we need to tell them we need to rebuke them we need to say listen what you have done offends me what you have done is a sin against god that's what paul does in galatians so peter and barnabas get drawn away with this whole jewish crowd that's being segregated against the gentiles and paul comes in and he says when i saw that their conduct was not in concert with the gospel it says, when I saw that the way that they were acting did not tie in with the truth of the gospel, I rebuked them. So Paul goes to Peter. <laughs> Peter, the, the pillar of the church, the, the rock that the church is built on. Paul goes to him and says, you're wrong, Peter. This is, you should not be acting this way. 
And Peter repents, and he turns. He's keeping his brother from sin. And we need to do that. We need to have freedom, and we need to have closeness of relationship to the point that we can do that with one another. That when someone sins against us, we can let them know. We can talk to them about the way that they have done it. You know, the holidays are a time sometimes when we, we rub shoulders with, with people that, that do know how to push our buttons. And, and it happens frequently. And if it happens, it shouldn't be something that you go into the living room and you talk about them with someone else. If someone has really sinned against you, we, we need to confront things. We need to talk to people. We need to have that within our families, within our church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would rebuke one another when it is necessary. I think Galatians 6, just kind of as a closing word, ties these things together in, a, in an interesting way. In Galatians 6, 1, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. <coughs> Excuse me. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So Paul's saying, if you find someone else in sin... You need to try to pull them out of sin. This is a community thing. Keep them out of sin. But he also says, temptations are sure to come. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So it kind of comes full circle, doesn't it? So this person's sin that I'm rebuking could become a temptation of sin for me. So in the midst of trying to help someone else out of sin, I could get drawn into it. So there's this whole picture of the community working together, and we all need to, we need to strive for personal holiness. We also need to rebuke sin when we, when we see it, but we need to be careful that we're not falling into the same sin that others are falling into. So all I have to say, brothers and sisters, that we are in this together. I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper, and so are you. We need to watch out for one another, and one of the ways that we do that is through keeping ourselves from sin. And another way is by lovingly rebuking others when we see them falling into sin or when they sin against us. But the reality is that sin's going to happen, right? And we could do our best and still people are going to sin against us. And so Jesus encourages us not only to keep others from sin, but also to keep no record of sin. That's the second thing I want to say. Keep no record of sin. So, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents... Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So, <laughs> forgiveness. It says if he repents, if, if your brother comes and turns from sin and repents. Now, there's, there's debate, do I need to forgive someone if they haven't repented um, to me about that sin. That, you know, it's not really in the text here. I think we should have a heart that is full of forgiveness so that when someone comes to repent, we're, we're ready and quick to forgive. But the emphasis here in this passage is not about repentance. It's not about the kind of repentance. It's about forgiveness. And it's as children of God, we are quick to repent. We are ready and willing to repent. We freely forgive when someone comes and says, I have sinned. Will you forgive me? But what if they sin again? (laughs) Jesus says, if they sin against you seven times in the day. That's just one day, right? I mean, people sin against you seven times in in one day. So you're supposed to keep track, right? One, two, three. All right, after the eighth time, it's over, you know. (laughs) No, that's not the point. Matthew says, no, it's actually 70 times, depending on the translation, 70 times seven. So the point of the number seven is not keep track. The point is you forgive. 
If they continue, 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 continue to sin against you, then you continue, continue, continue to forgive. But what if, what if they're repenting and it's like not really genuine repentance, you know? Because if someone's sinning against you seven times in a day, I mean, is that genuine repentance? Jesus says nothing about that here, does he? He just says, you forgive. You freely and willingly forgive them. Colossians 3, 12-13 says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive. Forgiveness is a way that we image God, that we reflect God in the world. It's to show others what the love of God looks like. And how does God forgive us? Freely. He freely forgives us. When we come excuse me, when we come and we repent, does he does he hold it over our heads? He says, ah, I'm not sure if that's real true repentance there. I want to make sure that you understand how bad I was hurt by your sin. He doesn't. He freely forgives. No matter how many times we sin in the same way, He forgives. No matter how foolish we are and continue to be, He forgives. He doesn't remember our sins. He doesn't hold them over our heads. He casts them as far as the east is from the west. And that's how we are supposed to forgive. We are to to no longer bring the sin up. I was listening to Alistair Begg preach on this passage this week, and he said that forgiveness means that we will not bring it up again. We will not bring it up to the person. We will not bring it up to others. And we will not bring it up to ourselves. I won't bring it up to that person again. I won't get historical when they sin against me again. So remember that one time? Well, I thought you forgave me for that. Well, I did, but... Let me talk about it one more time, just to show you how bad it was. We don't bring it up again. We don't bring it up to others. So we don't talk about it to other people. You know, I forgave them, but let me just tell you how bad that hurt when they sinned against me. Matthew 18 tells us that the the circle remains as small as the offense. So if it happens between two people, then that's where it stays. It doesn't need to come up again. And we don't bring it up again to ourselves. That's hard, though. That's hard to not, when someone really hurts you, I don't think Jesus is saying it's it's easy. He's saying it's it's difficult, but that's what we are to do. First Corinthians thirteen, often read at weddings, talks about love, and it's appropriate. But in fact, that passage is talking about the love that we have between brothers and sisters. And what does love look like in that passage? It says, "Love keeps no record of wrongs." You don't have a tally sheet of all the different ways that people have sinned against you. This is hard. This is costly. But in the same way, if we offer forgiveness that costs us something, aren't we imaging God? Because didn't our forgiveness cost God something? It cost Jesus his own life to bring forgiveness to us. There was no way for us to be forgiven of our sin except that Jesus die for our sins. And so in a sense, when we offer forgiveness to others, we are modeling the gospel, we are modeling Christ, we are dying to ourselves, and we are releasing people from sin. Now hopefully the weight of that sinks in because it's sunk in for the apostles, which is why in response they say, increase our faith. <laughs> they say, 
Lord, this thought of of strong holiness, of not causing other people to sin, and then rebuking them if they do, and then forgiving them, and forgiving them over and over and over again, they say, oh, we can't do that. You've got to increase our faith. We don't have the, the kind of faith for that kind of huge task. And so in verses 5 through 6, Jesus is going to remind us of something. He's going to remind us that we are fully dependent on God. We are fully dependent on God. That's the only way that we can do these things. So he says, they say, increase our faith. And Jesus says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, a tiny little seed, then you could say to this mulberry tree, a huge tree that they say the root system was so deep that it could live for about 600 years. This, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. Now, there's weeds in my garden that I can't uproot. Now, part of the problem is I don't weed enough, maybe. (laughs) But you know that one where you're leaning on it and finally it breaks off and you fall backwards? He's saying a whole tree, I mean a big tree with a massive root system. Now, the point isn't that we should go out and find some trees and tell them to be uprooted and thrown you know, into the Ohio River or something like that. But rather, the point is you can do great things with a little bit of faith. Daryl Bach says, Jesus is concerned not about faith's volume, but about its presence. God can work with even a little faith. Another commentator I read said, it's not about the, the quantity, it's about the quality of faith in general. Because faith, when we think about faith, faith in and of itself really has no value, does it? The, the value of faith is rooted in what we are trusting in. That's where faith finds its, its value. The, the power of faith is found in its object. So if I have a massive amount of faith in a, in a rope bridge that's rotten to get me across some giant ravine, that, that's not very strong faith. That's just stupidity because it probably won't get me across. But if I have just a tiny bit of faith that if I walk across the Golden Gate Bridge, it's going to get me from one side to the other, well, then that's quality faith because that little bit of faith is in something that is strong and is, is powerful, it's great and it's, it's sturdy. So the di- disciples, Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, it's not about how much faith you have because even a small amount of faith in an all-powerful God can do amazing and indescribable things like, like uproot trees. It can do amazing things or forgive someone who continues to sin against you over and over again. So, so the disciples think that, that walking in love, walking in holiness and forgiveness, this is going to require some great massive amount of faith. But Jesus says that it requires a little bit of faith in a really great God. It doesn't matter how much faith we have because our faith is dependent upon God himself. So, so rather than saying, Lord, increase our faith, maybe what the disciples need to say is, Lord, increase our, our knowledge of you. Let, let us know how to comprehend your love and your forgiveness so that we can then extend that to others. Let us know the power of the Holy Spirit to kill sin and to keep us from temptation. The power of the Holy Spirit that would lead us to bring forgiveness to others. The Christian life is a life of faith. And, and faith is the cry of a heart that acknowledges that it can do nothing apart from the power and the grace of God. And that's the, what it is from beginning to end. Again, in Galatians, you don't begin by faith and then become perfected by works. You don't, you're not saved by faith and then offer forgiveness out of your own power. 
It's, it's all of faith. And even a little bit of faith in a great God can allow you to do these things that seem next to impossible. So Jesus says there in, in, in 5 and 6 that we are fully dependent on God. And then this last section, 7 through 10, he says we are unworthy servants. We are unworthy servants. Look at this illustration. You have a servant. So imagine that you have someone who is your servant who takes care of things for you. Wouldn't that be nice? The servant is out plowing and keeping your sheep. And when he comes in, do you say to him, come at once, sit down, have dinner? The applied answer is, no. (laughs) You don't say that. Rather you say, make my dinner. (laughs) Prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink. And after that, then you can eat and drink. And when the servant does that, does the master say, thank you so much for serving me in this way? No, he doesn't. So also, he says, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. I think about the parallel of the military. (laughs) I've never been in the military, so some of you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that drill sergeants thank new recruits for obeying orders. You know, I don't think that that typically happens. They do it because they're told to. Rather, they, they do what they are required. And there's this sense here where he's saying that we, as members of God's kingdom, are unworthy servants. That's a tough thing to think about, isn't it? Because there is this sense in which we are sons. I think of Romans 8. God has not given you the spirit of slavery, but of sons, that we cry out, Abba, Father. That's something different than what he's saying here. So what, what's he saying? Let me give you two thoughts that maybe help me think through it and help you. And I think this is something to continue to meditate on this week. Um, but the first would be, we owe God our lives. And we've been talking a lot about this. We owe God our, our lives. Not, not in the sense of paying him back. We don't live the Christian life as some means of repaying God for his grace. But radical, rather this, this uh, radical forgiveness and, and holiness don't, don't bring us to the positive end of the equation, that we're paying God back. Rather, what he's saying here is that this is just simply what it means to be a servant of Christ. This is, this is what you do. Paul and James, they often call themselves, they say, I'm a servant of God. That, that's what I describe myself as. I'm a servant. And Paul ends a call to holiness by saying in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body because you are own. Duty is, is not a bad thing. Being a, a servant, being a slave, if you will, of God is not a bad thing. Especially if we serve him out of love. I just thought about the Old Testament where there was this law that said, if you are a slave and after so many years you're free, unless you love your master, then let him pierce your ear and you'll be with him forever because you love him. Now he's still going to be a servant, but there's love there. And I think that's in part what's going on here. There is love for Christ that we want to serve him. The sense we have to think about ourselves that in this last phrase, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. Related to this then, I think, a second thought. So we owe God our lives, and then secondly, God is never in our debt. God is never in our debt. I think that's maybe the main thing that Jesus is trying to say here. That we don't earn anything from God. Everything that we do 
in service to Christ is simply service to Christ. It's, it's what we are supposed to do. It's what we are called to do. Paul says that we are, in, in, in Romans 12, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And the King James says, because that is your reasonable service. That's, that's just what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to lay down your life for the sake of Christ. Why? It's just what you do. That's reasonable. That, that makes total sense because that's what Christ has done for us. And just before that, in Romans 11, he asked the question, who has given a gift to God that he should be repaid? Implied answer, no one. God owes nothing to anyone. God owes you, God owes me nothing. And yet he gives us all things. So therefore, if God owes us nothing, but he gives us everything, then everything that we have is pure grace. Everything. John Piper says this about the passage. This is a great encouragement to faith. Why? Because it means that God is just as free to bless us before we get our act together as he is after. Since we are unworthy slaves before we have done what we should and unworthy slaves afterwards as well, it is only grace that would prompt us, that would prompt God to help us. Therefore, he is free to help us before and after. This is a great incentive to trust him for help when we feel like we don't have our act together. I don't know about you, but this week I feel like I didn't have my act together. I've had this nasty cold and I just felt off all week. I felt like I wasn't walking in faith, like I was being unforgiving, like I wasn't fighting hard in the fight of holiness. And then i got to stand up here and preach a sermon. And so I, I don't have enough time to do enough acts of righteousness to prove myself to God so that he will... Show me kindness and help me preach a sermon. I, I can't do it. I don't have enough time. And I can't do it because God owes me nothing. Whether I do righteous acts or not. So, because if I have a day where I'm walking in faith, or a day where I am a complete failure, in both days I am an unworthy slave at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day and all throughout the day, and God owes me nothing. God owes you nothing, which means that any help that he gives us is pure grace. Any blessing that he gives is grace. Any love, any love that he shows to us is grace. You didn't earn any of it. We are all unworthy slaves. Everything that we have from him is unearned, it's unmerited, it's undeserved. So when you feel particularly unworthy, you're right. <laughs> We are. That's what we are. We are unworthy slaves. And even in that moment, God says, if you feel unworthy, that shouldn't be something that would keep you from asking me for help. Because you'll always be unworthy. And so if we are walking in faith, then we come to him. Now, this doesn't preclude us confessing our sins, making things right with other people. But it does mean that there's never a moment where God owes us something. And because of that, we should never feel like we can't come to him and ask for help. <coughs> Excuse me. So, we're unworthy slaves. <laughs> we're unworthy slaves and we can't do anything apart from the grace of God. We cannot forgive like this. We can't keep others from sin. We can't do that apart from the power of God working through faith. Apart from the grace of God that comes to us even when we don't deserve it. Because from beginning to end, the Christian life is a, is a life of faith. 
It's one where we're trusting in God. From beginning to end, we are unworthy slaves that God has adopted and made sons. And we can never pay Him back for it. And He doesn't ask us to pay Him back for it. Instead, He freely gives us more grace.